You are listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the first 10 verses. So Hebrews 5, 1 through 10. And as you're, uh, as you're turning there, you're going to say it with me. You should be memorizing it by now if you've been here for a few weeks. Uh, we're, we're going through this so that we can know Jesus better. Love Jesus more and serve Jesus greater. This is why we're tackling this hard, hard book. We're in chapter 5 today, and some of you who are familiar with Hebrews know that there's 13 chapters in Hebrews. And so some of you are beginning to do the mental math saying, we started this in February, and it's now June, and we're just now starting chapter 5. How long are we going to be in this thing? And honestly, some of us might be going, and we, can, could we just get a message on how to be a better dad? Could we just get a, a message on how to handle our finances better or how to, how to make our home life better? And we could. But understand that for the saved person, for the Christian, Anything like that that we would talk about, our home life, our career, our finances, how we deal with interpersonal relationships, be friends or or family or whatever the case may be, any of that is only uh, successful, it is only um, worthwhile if it is built on the foundation of knowing who Jesus is and what he has done and what that then means for us. There are thousands of books you can read, 10 Steps to Being a Better Spouse, 12 Steps to Raising Better Kids, 15 Steps to Having Better Finances, but there's only one book that tells us of the King, of the Savior, of the Lord, who does a work in our lives that accomplishes all of those things that we want through His power, through His Spirit, through His nature. Through his sacrifice, St. Augustine said this centuries ago, Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. In any area of my life, any area of your life where we hold back from Jesus, any area of my life, your life where we we think, well, God, I can handle that one. Anytime we do that, we are saying to him, you are not valued above everything. And so it is imperative for us, it's important for us to understand as we go through this difficult book slowly, methodically, that the purpose is so that we come out on the other side understanding what it means to value Jesus above everything, above your career, above your schoolwork. I'm not giving you permission not to do your schoolwork, kids. I'm just saying value Jesus above it. Above some of our sometimes preconceived and culturally formatted ideas of what family should look like, that Jesus is to be valued above all. And when he is valued above all in my life and in your life, collectively as a body of Christ, individually in the different roles and scenarios we play, when that happens, then all those things that we want, to be a better spouse, to be a better child, to be a better worker, to have control of our finances, to do all those things, that comes about because we are valuing him greater than anything else. And so that's why we're here. So Hebrews chapter 5, 
verses 1 through 10, if you want to follow along with me today. He writes, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There, there's a form of Greek writing called chiastic writing. Do we have that to throw up on the screen today? So chiastic writing is just this way of writing. It's saying something and then repeating it in reverse order to emphasize it. So, for example, when Jesus says in the Gospels, the first shall be last and the last shall be first, he's just repeating it in reverse order for emphasis. So the author of Hebrews utilizes this in these first 10 verses. And he takes the first four verses and he basically kind of breaks down the role of the Old Testament high priest, the Old Covenant high priest. Verse 1, he speaks of the old priestly position. Again in verse 1, then he looks about the old way of sacrifice. In verses 2 and 3, he looks at the weakness of the priest. And then in verse 4, he talks about Aaron and the appointment of the priest. Then he just starts and reverses it back as he then begins to teach us about Jesus. Verses 5 and 6, the appointment of Jesus, that God appointed him into this role. Uh, Verses 7 and 8, the suffering of Jesus that parallels with the weakness of the Old Testament priest. Verse 9, the new way of sacrifice, that which is an eternal salvation made possible. And then verse 10, the new priestly position, Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. I wanted to show you this today because I think it helps us decipher and dig into a little deeper what the author is trying to tell us. That he starts with this description of, of who the Old Testament priest was. And again, remember, to a primarily Jewish Christian audience, that would have been very important for them to understand, here's how the old way worked. But now, in reverse order, here's who Jesus is. And here's how Jesus works. And so I wanted you to see that today because maybe it'll help make some sense out of what we're going to talk about today. Let's look at these first four verses again as we have this description of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant priest. Every high priest chosen from man or from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin is what verse 1 tells us. Um, I would encourage you this week to read Exodus chapter 28 and 29 and read Leviticus chapter 16. 
Because essentially what the author of Hebrews here is doing is he's giving us kind of the high points of the Old Testament priesthood. But in Exodus 28 and 29, you'll read uh, the description of the priestly garments, of how the priest was to be dressed, of all the symbolism and the significance of the colors and, and the different things that the priest wore. In Leviticus 16, you'll see the, the description of what the high priest had to do in offering a sacrifice for himself before he could even offer a sacrifice on behalf of anybody else. And, and if you'll read those th three chapters this week, Exodus 28 and 29, Leviticus 16, uh, that'll give you more detail uh, on what was happening in that time. But here again, he's just kind of dealing with the high points. And the high points are that the high priest was chosen from men on behalf of men because he was a man. And it began with Aaron. Aaron being chosen by God, the brother of Moses, Aaron who was chosen because Moses said famously, I can't speak. All right, well, then you'll be the mouthpiece, Aaron. Aaron was the one chosen to be the first high priest, and then the high priest's succession there in the Old Testament came from Aaron and his family. But there's an interesting piece about Aaron, right? In Exodus 32, Moses is on the mountain with God. He's receiving the Ten Commandments. He's receiving all the words. And in Exodus 32, there's a little skirmish going on down at the bottom of the hill. The people of Israel are getting antsy. Moses hadn't made it back yet. We tend to get antsy when things don't go according to our timetable, don't we? And so they get antsy and they go to Aaron. Aaron, let's make a God. Let's make an idol. Because who knows what's happened to Moses? Let's, let's make a God, let's make an idol. And so Aaron says to them to take all the rings of gold in their, in their household and all their family, bring it to him. And listen to what it says in Exodus 32, verse 4. And he, Aaron, received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Now that's really important because later in Exodus 32, Obviously, it gets found out. Later in Exodus 32, God says to Moses, they're up to some no good stuff. And Moses goes and he investigates and he, he comes to Aaron in verse 21 and basically begins to question him. And, and as Aaron is explaining what happened, listen to what he says in verse 24. I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Bring me all your gold. I'm going to put it in the fire. I take a graving tool. I form it into a golden calf. I make it an idol. I get caught. Oh, I don't know. I just threw it all in there and this golden calf dropped out. We, who do we hear excuses like that from? Children. I, I don't know how the light bulb got broke. I don't know how that package of goldfish got underneath my pillow. And the point with it here is that even in spite of that, what we then read later on as we follow the, New, the Old Testament is that in Leviticus 8, Aaron and his sons get consecrated to fill the role of the high priest. I, I want to divert for just a second. You might be here today, you might be watching today, and you might be thinking, man, there is no way God can use me. My past is too horrible. My present struggles are too difficult. 
I have little faith, I have some doubts. Whatever the case may be, you might be in a moment where you're thinking, there's no way God can do anything great through me. I'm guessing for all of us that all the weaknesses that we have and all the, the sins and the struggles and the doubts that we may fight from time to time, I'm guessing none of us have melted down all the gold in our house and fashioned a golden calf. And if God can take that man and declare him to be high priest for the people of Israel, there's nothing in your life or my life that God can't move past to do what he wants to do in your life for his glory and his kingdom. I don't know how that calf got there. I think the only way the Exodus would have been better would have been if God had popped out and said, I know. But he's chosen. Aaron's chosen. And look at what it says that he's chosen to do at the end of verse 1, he's, or the middle to the end of verse 1. He's chosen to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. In his very simplest form, he was a mediator. He was a go-between between God and Israel. The Holman commentary just puts it very simply. He dealt with any hindrance or barrier which separated human beings from God. And without the high priest, Israel would have stayed steeped in their sin. Without the high priest, Israel would have stayed separated from God. And so we see the importance of this position. And look again there in verse 2, how he does this. At the end of verse 1, he offers gifts and sacrifices, but then read verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. He, the Old Testament priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Those two words describe very, two very uh, intentional things. The ignorant is those who sin unintentionally. You might be saying, how do you sin unintentionally? Well, you could say something. You could do something. You could, uh, there's something you could do in your life that has no sin motive behind it but can lead to sin or lead to others' sin. So you didn't have the motive behind it, but yet it still was there. In the, in the Old Testament, there were sacrifices that God allowed for unintentional sin. But that, that wayward section here is the, is the word that describes the, the, a deliberate, intentional, fist-raised kind of to God. I don't care what you say, I'm going to do this. And it says the Old Testament priests could deal gently with him. He deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Dealing gently has a meaning of moderation. It's, it's not too easy on sin, meaning it's not overlooking sin altogether and just patting them on the back and going, well, it's okay, everybody struggles. But it's not also going to the other end of the spectrum and, and judging harshly. Uh, we might use a phrase, throwing the book at them, Literally. It's dealing with them in the middle. It's a, it's a phrase that describes the ability to curb or to control one's emotions. And so the high priest was to deal in this way. Now, why is this important? Well, a few, a few pages later in your Bible, there's a, a guy named Peter that wrote a couple letters. And in 1 Peter, he talks about us being a royal priesthood. It doesn't mean we serve necessarily the same offices or, or offer the sacrifices, but God begins to create within us a royal priesthood, predominantly how we interact with one another in God's church. And here the Old Testament priest is described as one who can deal gently with others' sin. I'm afraid church people don't have a very good track record of dealing gently with each other's sin. 
Oftentimes, we either go to one extreme or the other. We just overlook it. It's okay. Everybody has struggles. Or we go the other side and bring down harsh, critical judgment on one another. That was not the design of the Old Testament high priest. That was not the design of the priesthood of man. And we would think that what the Scripture tells us would give us a clue as to why we deal gently. Look at the end of there of verse 2. Since he himself is beset with weakness. We deal gently. He dealt gently. We deal gently with other people's sins because we acknowledge our own weakness. We acknowledge our own sinfulness. The word weakness here is the same word that was used previously in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, about the high priest being unable to sympathize with our weakness. It's the same word in Romans 8, 26, where Paul talks about the Holy Spirit uh, in our weakness praying for us when we don't know how to pray. It's the same word that Paul used again in 2 Corinthians 12 when he's talking about this mysterious thorn in the flesh, this mysterious ailment or situation or condition that he had, and that he pleaded with God to take it away. And what God said was, my grace is enough for you. It's sufficient for your weakness. And Paul would then go on to say, so when I am weak, I am strong. That I will boast in my weaknesses because it means that in that area, God is going to do something. This idea of being beset with weaknesses is very simply this. It is the inability to produce results naturally. It's the inability to produce results of a person's own accord. And so the Old Testament priest realized, it's why he had to, the verse next in Hebrews tells us, it's why he had to offer sin up for uh, sacrifice for himself first. Because of his own accord, he was unable to offer sacrifice for the people of Israel because he himself was sinful. You are here today, you are viewing the day, and you are in one of two camps. You are a sinner yet still unredeemed by Christ because you've not placed faith and trust in him and believed in the gospel. Or you are a saint who is found perfectly righteous and holy in Jesus but still sins, still struggles. And because of that, we then have the attitude towards one another in this priesthood where we understand we are weak And we understand that of the natural ability that we have is nothing compared to the power of sin so that when we have sin, when we have these struggles, we lean on Jesus. We let him deal with it. We let the Spirit deal with those things in our lives because we acknowledge that even though we are made saints, we are still in this battle deeply. You say, how do I do I do that? How do I acknowledge that weakness and how do I then rely upon him to do it. Well, I, I think it, it's, it's different for different people, different personalities, the way they think through things. But I can tell you that one time, myself and some other members of a church staff uh, were in a vehicle with a man who was getting ready to leave his wife. And, we, and I've told you this story, bits and pieces of it before in different ways, but um, there was one part of that story I don't think I've ever shared with you. He was just bound and determined, uh, she's my soulmate. She's she's the one God prepared for me long ago, and I just now found her, so it's okay for me to leave my current wife. And so realizing we weren't really getting anywhere with him, one of the members of the pastoral staff said this to him, called him by name, and I won't use his name, of course, but called him by name and said, okay, if you're bound and determined to do this, do it. 
But let me just tell you to do one more thing. When you go meet up with her tonight and you have sex with her and she's not your wife, before you all jump in that bed, kneel down and pray and give thanks to God for what you're about to do. How, how, how do we get past the things that we're doing? We said that to him because we knew that if he would do that, if she would do that, and if they really truly belonged to Christ, there would be no way the Spirit of God would say to them, okay, at least you prayed about it, go on. We knew that what the Spirit of God would do would be to say to him and to her and to us if we do the same kind of things for our failures in our lives. No, don't enter that moment. Understand that what it means to be saved by this high priest who has given his life for us is that you do not have to be beset by this weakness any longer. You can overcome in that moment. Because the Spirit of God is living within you. He helps us to understand the role of the high priest in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and then he shifts. Look again at verse 5. He begins to go in reverse order. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. He was appointed by God. Today you are my son. I've, I've begotten you. Verse 6, you're a priest forever. In the, after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus was not chosen from men on behalf of men, but Jesus became man on behalf of man. And this is kind of the ultimate, if you want it done right, do it yourself moment. I'm going to take care of it, God says. Where the priest fell short, where the nation of Israel fell, fell short, where every Gentile falls short, where every man, woman, child, boy, and girl falls short, I'm going to take care of doing what they can't do. Live in perfect obedience. Live in perfect righteousness. Offer up a perfect sacrifice for sin that pays the debt for them forever. See, God appointed Jesus at just the right time in just the right moment in just the right way not to do away with the sacrificial system and, the, whole, and the, the Old Testament high priest, but to fulfill it completely. I think sometimes we think that, that God just wipes away all of it. It's not that he wipes it away. He brings it to a completion. He brings it to perfection. He does through his son what no one else on earth could have ever done, to have just wiped it away and to, for God to have just said, well, we just won't worry about that anymore, would have meant God would have had to compromise himself, his, his ideas of justice, his ideas of righteousness, his ideas of grace and of mercy. So he doesn't just wipe it away. He sends Jesus to perfect it, and he appoints Jesus to do that. And as the high priest Jesus suffered, look at verses 7 and 8 again. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. We'll stop at verse 7 for just a moment. What we learn from this is that Christ prayed, and he prayed fervently. There was a suffering in his prayer life. There was a suffering in his life that he had to pray over as a human being. It parallels the Old Testament priest's weakness. And he prayed, and he prayed fervently. I, I have concern that most of the time we don't pray fervently unless things are bad. It's the old saying, right? No atheists in foxholes. 
And it's not till we get in a bad state of life, a bad moment of life, that our prayers take on new passion. But yet what this scripture is teaching us is that in the days of his flesh, a, a phrase that really points to the fullness of his life, Jesus suffered, and when he suffered, he prayed. We don't know exactly all the ways that he suffered. We know some. We know he suffered through a temptation in the desert, through three temptations. We know he suffered at the cross. We know he probably suffered the, 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 the abandonment of the disciples and of others. We, we for sure can say he suffered the rejection of his own people. We don't have every bit and moment of it, but what the Scripture teaches us is that in the wholeness of his life, he prayed and he prayed fervently, and it says he was heard because of his reverence. This is such a beautiful word, because reverence is a word that means profound respect. It means awe. And so Jesus had a profound respect for God the Father. And so when he prayed, he prayed fervently and he prayed excitedly and he prayed passionately. But ultimately what he prayed was, God, I am so uh, uh, your servant. I am, I'm so uh, dedicated to you and to your will. It's the way he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? I'd really like you to take this cup from me, but if there's no other way to do it, then I yield. That's profound respect. The, the word reverence here, I, I know I grew up this way. I know many of you grew up this way, but we often think of reverence as coming between 1050 and 12 o'clock or 11 and 12 or whenever your church services were or are and sitting and hands here, or, you know, maybe, maybe clasped here and you know, no, no emotion, no, no raising of hands, no, no real in, into it, just, you know, reverent before the Lord right? But here's the thing, folks. Reverence means deep respect for God, profound respect for God. And you and I can come for an hour on Sunday morning, and we can be really, really reverent, and then we can leave and not do anything he tells us to the next six days. And this hour of being really, really reverent is nothing. Because a deep, profound respect, reverence for God is that we live it. It continues through our week. It becomes who we are. And yes, there, there's part of that respect for God that we're orderly. I'm not suggesting that everybody get up and run around the sanctuary when we're singing. I'm also not suggesting that if you feel led to raise your hands in worship, you shouldn't do that. Or that if you feel the Lord urging you to come and, and kneel before him and pray that you can do all of that with a deep and profound respect for God and understanding that what that reverence means is that you and I yield ourselves to him, to full service of him, to even in difficult times praying like Jesus prayed. We'd really love for this to go a different way, God, but if it doesn't, to your will, let it be done. Reverence, deep, profound respect. I have no idea or no doubt that David, when he danced before the Lord, and the scripture in the Old Testament says he danced undignified. Not many of us would call that reverent, but I have no doubt that he had respect. That when John sees his vision of, of the forever 
worship of God, and he sees these creatures that can only be described as supernatural. Like if you saw them in a dream, you'd probably want to go get some counseling the next day. That cry out for all of eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is not a picture of them sitting cautiously. It's a picture of their white, hot, intense passion for the glory of God being poured out to him. And I have no doubt in that moment that there's not great, profound respect. Jesus' prayers were heard because of his respect. Your prayers are heard because of his respect, our respect. And our respect leads us to pray passionately and fervently, but to pray to God, even though we'd like it to be a different way, we yield to your will. And look at what it said this offered to Christ in verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Because he prayed the way he prayed, because he had the reverence, he had the respect, because he yielded to God's will through the difficult times, he learned obedience. It, it, it's always funny, not ha-ha funny, but you know, ironic funny, when we encounter Jesus the human, isn't it? That he had to learn obedience as a human. That he had to go through difficult times, but, but think about why he did it. He did it because he's now the great high priest who sympathizes with us. He's now the great high priest who comes alongside of us. He's now the great high priest who lives within us by the power of his spirit. Because when we have sufferings and when we have struggles and when we have the doubts and when we want to go back to where it's comfortable, he's coming alongside of us saying, listen, I've been through all of that. And you're mine. And because I've been through all that and you're mine, you can get through it too. But it only get through it with him. We don't get through it by mustering up enough courage. We don't get through it by just digging our heels in and, and just fighting through. We get through it by yielding to him who has done it himself and done it for us that we might not have to do it all on our own it is easy to obey when all is well it is a much different thing to learn obedience when all is falling around us finishing up verses 9 and 10 being made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Being made perfect um, doesn't mean that Jesus lacked in perfection. Made perfect is a phrase that means he completed the task. He completed the mission. It's what he prayed in the high priestly prayer in John 17. Uh, paraphrasing here, of course. But I have done what you've asked me to do, Lord. I've done what you asked me to do, Father. I've fulfilled the task. I've fulfilled the mission. I'm getting ready to take the last step of it in obedience to the cross. I've done it. And because he has done that, look at how it describes him. It says he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He became the source. It does not say he became a source. It does not say he became a source among many. 
It says he became the source. And I understand fully in our pluralistic society today that there are people who say exclusivity is a bad thing. And in certain parts of the world, in certain parts of the culture, yes, that's definitely true. But understand, he says he's exclusive. He says he is the source. He is the way to eternal salvation. He becomes the way to eternally being sanctified and made more like him. It's only him. And understand, that does not come with arrogance on our part. We do not hold up the truth and look at those who lack the truth and go, na-na-na-na-boo-boo, we got it and you don't. We declare that he is the source of eternal salvation and we declare it through our lives and our words and our actions and our deeds and the way we spend our money and the way we spend our time and the way we do everything in life that he is valued among everything else because he is the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey. No Old Testament priest, no Old Testament sacrificial system could ever allow for eternal salvation. That's why they had the Day of Atonement every year. But Jesus is eternal. Jesus is a priest forever. Jesus has made possible for all who would say yes to him forever to be one with him and to continue to be made for him. And like the Old Testament and the New Testament Jews who wanted to, to go back to something else, we feel that urge and that pull sometimes, don't we? Oh, yeah, if I could just go back. You know, if I could just go to church more, that would get me. That would get me in. Well, I'll, I'll just make sure I'm a member somewhere. I was a member of a gym for about six months, but I never worked out, so it didn't make me an athlete. And church membership's important, and church involvement's important, and being involved in the local body of believers is important. All those things are important, but none of those things save. Those things are derivatives of, directives of Jesus coming into our lives and changing us forever and moving us to be more like him in the ways that he moves us to be like him. And it calls for us to obey. What does it mean to obey Jesus? It means to trust and understand and obey that only the gospel saves and only the gospel continues to save. <clears throat> it's what Paul wrote to the Galatian church. He said he found it strange that they began with grace, the gospel, but had now moved on to other things to try to become more like Jesus. The gospel saves. The gospel sanctifies. Jesus saves. Jesus sanctifies. Jesus can take even somebody who melts down all the gold and fashions a golden calf. He can take them and make them a high priest of all of Israel. If he can do that, what can he do with you? What can he do with you? If you would just yield, if we would just commit if we would just value him above all. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankfurt at gmail.com.